in the third week of a series of sermons, as you can just see on the highly enigmatic Old Testament character Samson. If you brought a Bible with you this morning, I'd like for you to ask you to, to turn with me in it to Judges chapter 15. Judges chapter 15. And I want to do just a quick review this morning and then jump right in uh, to Judges chapter 15. Uh, Israel, the hope of the world, uh, some of you will remember, if you've been with us throughout this series, is in danger when Samson's story opens. The nation upon whom all of the promises of the Messiah depend is slowly but surely being assimilated into the culture of the idol-worshipping Philistines, and Israel doesn't care. But out of faithfulness to his covenant promises, God intervenes, and through an angelic messenger announces to a woman who has been unable to, have, uh, to bear children, he announces that she will give birth to a firstborn son who will be a deliverer of Israel. Now for us, on this side of the New Testament, the similarities between Samson's birth and the story of Christ's birth are so stunning that we get goosebumps. And our expectations for this child shoot through the roof only to be dashed at the opening of chapter 14 when we learn that Samson... This promised deliverer of Israel from the Philistines wants to marry, wait for it, a Philistine. But during the pre-wedding festivities, Samson makes an ill-advised, high-stakes bet with some of her kinsmen, which he loses, and in an explosive rage, kills all 30 of them, and storms home, literally leaving his bride at the altar. Now let's pick up chapter 15 uh, at verse 1. Judges chapter 15, verse 1, later on, and we don't know what the time frame is, we don't know how long it's been, but later on, at the time of, of the wheat harvest, Samson took a young goat and went to visit his wife. I guess a young goat was a gift for the family. He said, I'm going to my wife's room. Now, now, now wait just a minute. He's acting as if nothing happened, as if he hadn't exploded in rage and killed 30 Philistines at the wedding and left his bride at the altar, it's as if nothing has happened at all. Have you ever known someone like this? Like, have you ever known someone who explodes in a rage, and they say terrible, hurtful things, and they break things, and they throw stuff around, and they storm out the house, and they slam the door behind them to punctuate their rage, leaving everyone in their wake terrified, distraught, hurt, only to return later, acting as if nothing happened. No apologies, no remorse. Like, they've calmed down, but they're seemingly unaware of the havoc that they've created. You ever known something like that? That's Samson here. Let's read on. But her father would not let him go in. I was so sure you hated her, he said, that I gave her to your companion. You know, Samson, uh, invitation, invitations had been sent out and, and the chapel had been decorated and the bridesmaids and the groomsmen, they were all there dressed up, the dress, the makeup, the hair, everyone invited Everyone who was invited was there. The minister was there. Everyone was there except you. So I gave her to your best man instead. What was I going to do? Do you know how much weddings cost these days? He must, have, like he must have seen the storm brewing across Samson's face. So he says callously, isn't her younger sister more attractive? Take her instead. What a prince of a father. <laughs> Nevertheless, Samson isn't having it. Verse 3, Samson said to them, this time I have a right to get even with the Philistines. I will really harm them. So he went out and he caught 300 foxes and tied them tail to tail in pairs. He then fastened a torch to every pair of tails. 
lit the torches, and let the foxes loose in the standing grain of the Philistines. He burned up the shocks and the standing grain together with the vineyards and the olive groves. Uh, it's just hard to know what to comment on first. <laughs> There's the unbelievable cruelty to these poor animals. Good night. This takes in a serious amount of premeditation. Catching 300 foxes, tying their tails together, lighting them on fire. Where did he even come up with such a cruel idea? And then, and then destroying a year's worth of work in the crops and, and, and a year's worth of food. I mean... Like, it all seems so massively out of proportion. And I have to tell you, I've read Samson's story, like, many, many times before. I studied it in seminary. I've even preached uh, on, on Samson before. And while I knew something, like, something was wrong with this dude, I could never really come up with a word for what was wrong, like a name for it, something that encapsulated Samson's whole outlook on life. Until it hit me, uh, just recently actually, Samson would fit in perfectly, so perfectly in our culture. Because Samson sees himself as a victim. That's how he sees himself. As a victim. And verse 3 is one of the most clear declarations of this. Samson said to them, this time I have a right to get even with the Philistines. I will really harm them. Now that, that's victim language. Never mind that Samson walked out on the wedding ceremony. Never mind that Samson placed a stupid bet and lost it because he couldn't keep his mouth shut as we saw last week. Never mind that he shouldn't have been marrying a Philistine girl in the first place. It's everyone else's fault. I have the right. I'm perfectly justified in taking revenge on these people. That's victim speak. You see. Now look, as soon as I, as soon as I use the word victim, I, I, I have to clarify something. There are two kinds of victims in the world. There are those who are, are true victims. You've been abused by someone. You've been emotionally wounded by someone. You've been physically wounded by someone. I'm not, not making light in any way, shape, or form of true victims. The kind of victim I'm talking about, the kind that Samson is, is the person who's adopted a victim mentality toward life. In other words, they've made victim their identity. Everyone's out to get them. Life is out to get them. It's all unfair. It's everyone else's fault. And Samson is all about this. Watch, watch verse 6. When the Philistines asked who did this, they were told Samson, the Timnites' son-in-law, because his wife was given to his companion. So the Philistines went up and burned her and her father to death. I mean, this is a cruel society. Samson said to them, since you've acted like this, I swear that I won't stop until I get my revenge on you. He attacked them viciously and slaughtered many of them. Then he went down and stayed in a cave in the rock of Etam. Once again, notice what he says in verse 7. Since you have acted like this. Now, there's no question that they did something wrong, the Philistines, but this too is victim language, since you have acted like this. Notice, there's no self-reflection here on Samson's part. No sense of, man, look at all the destruction that my foolishness and rage and lust and impetuousness has wrought. No, no self-reflection here, no taking responsibility. It's all their fault. Since you have acted like this... I have no choice. Now, how many of you think 
that at this point of the story, things are going to get better now in this story. Like, how many of you think it's going to get more peaceful and less violent? Well, surprise, surprise, not only do things not get better, they escalate. In verse 9, the Philistines go into Israel. They prepare to go to war with Israel. The men of Judah, the part of Israel, they want no part of this. Remember, uh, they're perfectly happy being assimilated into Philistine culture to the point of national extinction. So verse 11, and this is funny to me, then 3,000 men from Judah went down to the cave in the rock of Etam and said to Sam, it takes 3,000 men to go have a conversation with one man. 3,000 men from Judah went down to the cave in the rock of Etam and said to Samson, don't you realize that the Philistines are rulers over us? What have you done to us? Now, uh, raise your hands on this one. How many of you are expecting contrition and repentance from Samson? Like, how many of you are expecting Samson to say, you know, guys, I've been thinking about this. And listen, I really have. I've screwed up here. My irresponsibility got something started that has escalated way out of control. And, and I'm to blame. How many of you, raise your hand, are expecting that? Nobody. Okay. Well, watch what he says. He answered, I merely did to them what they did to me. That's his answer. I merely did to them what they did to me. My wife used to wear a t-shirt sometimes that captured the spirit of Samson's reply perfectly. It read, it's not me, it's you. That's what Samson's saying. It's their fault, it's not mine. I merely did to them what they did to me. I had no choice. I had no choice, you see. That's what he's saying. Now, now I want to just stop here for a moment. And I want to say a few things about this whole uh, sort of victim mentality. First, I want to say this, that this victim mentality is instinctive. It's instinctive for every one of us. Anyone remember uh, the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? I hope you remember this because we were just in a series about this a few months ago. Uh, God says to Adam, he goes to him and he says to Adam, I'm telling you, you guys, Adam and Eve, you guys are not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can eat from any of the other trees in the garden except that one. You can't eat from that one. Satan slithers up to Eve, tempts her with fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and she eats. God comes to Adam and he says, dude, what happened? Here's Adam's response, verbatim, I kid you not. Here's what he says. The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Boom, there it is. There's the victim, There's the victim mentality. And if you, I don't know if you noticed, but it's a two for one. Uh, it's the woman's fault she did it, and oh, by the way, it's the woman you gave me, God. So it's your fault, too. It's kind of genius the way he does this. Now, because you inherited a sin nature from Adam, this victim mentality is in your blood. It's, in, it's instinctive. Like, you don't have to be taught it. And if you don't believe that, I want you to just check this out. Check this out. There it is. Quinn made me do it. It's instinctive. Even the little kids do it, playing the victim. And I don't know if you realize this, but a victim mentality can sound as unsophisticated as a, as a little girl blaming your little brother. Or it can sound as sophisticated as much talked about and much discussed 
very intellectual philosophies. For instance, here's the definition of a philosophy. It's called determinism. See what you think. Determinism is the belief that all events, including moral choices, are completely determined by previously existing causes. Sound like a victim mentality? That's it. It's a victim mentality. I don't have any choice. Everything I did, it's all predetermined. Here's another one. Fatalism. Fatalism is the philosophy that all, event, all events are fixed in advance so that human beings are powerless to change them. It's a victim mentality. And you see, it's, it's instinctive in the human soul because it's part of you. It's part of our inherited sin nature. And it can sound as unsophisticated as a little child blaming her brother. Or it can sound as sophisticated as a much discussed philosophy and much written about philosophy. By some very smart people, by the way. It's a victim mentality. It's not me, it's them. It's not my fault. The second thing you need to know and understand about this victim mentality is that it is powerfully seductive. And why? What's so seductive about it? Well, I'm going to give you four things that make uh, playing the victim so seductive. Here's the first one. Because nothing's ever your fault, you never have to admit wrong. Well, that's a pretty nice place to be, right? Never having to submit wrong. Because, second, because you're never wrong, you never have to do the honest work of self-reflection. Maybe it is me. Maybe, it, maybe the problem is me. Maybe it's not the problem. It's everybody else. Maybe, it's, maybe, maybe I am wrong. Third, you're absolved, because you're absolved of responsibility, whatever you do is justified. Samson. Cruelty to animals, destroying crops, killing people. Some people, though, are more passive about it than Samson. Than, than Samson. Some people, you know, well, they don't talk. I mean, that's their way of doing it. Or, or they give up because you're a victim. It's all not fair. Fourth, and this one really, you, know, you can't find it so much in this story, but I think it's important to say is that, is that part of what's so seductive of the, about the victim mentality is that people will rescue you. Some people only for a while, like they catch on. But other people will keep rescuing, rescuing you because it makes them feel good about themselves. Like by rescuing you, I feel like a hero. And that feels really good to me. So a victim mentality, it's very seductive because it works, kind of, at least for a time. Anyone here recognize the victim mentality in you? Yeah. A few of you, the rest of you are lying. <laughs> Anyone here given in to the siren call of the victim mentality? Uh, I have. In fact, I think it's one of my spiritual gifts. I'm victimy. <laughs> I think it's important to acknowledge that it's very popular, this victim mentality within the Christian community. Earlier this year, a very popular Christian author uh, named Rachel Held Evans passed away uh, tragically. At the very young age of 37, she left behind a husband, a young daughter. It was terribly sad. Uh, it, it was terribly tragic. And in the days following her death, there were, of course, you know, outpourings of sadness and tributes and expressions of what she had meant uh, to many people. But her writings were controversial. And there were some who, treading very lightly, trying to be respectful at the same time, pointed out that a great deal of her appeal was that she promoted a victim mentality. 
Here's one comment from a Christian academic who'd studied her writing for years, and I'm going to leave his name um, anonymous today. He said, there's power in knowing in your bones that you have been wronged. Being wronged removes a reason for guilt. Being wronged erases shame. Rachel Held Evans said, your parents were wrong, your church was wrong, your Christian college was wrong. They were all wrong, and Jesus loves you just the way you are. Powerful stuff. None of that, the church and the faith, will change you stuff. If someone can convince you that you've been wronged and that isn't hard to do, then it's really easy to turn them on to the affirmation gospel or to get them to go to Sedona or convince them the occult can solve their problems or that if everyone celebrated homosexuality, all of our conflicts would dissipate or convince them that becoming a white supremacist or a jihadi is the answer. Very easy to convince people that they've been wronged because this victim mentality part of our nature. It's part of our nature. It's instinctive to us. I, I hear this victim culture as justification. I hear it often in, in my capacity as justification for why people don't go to church or why they've rejected Christianity. The church did this to me. The church did that to me. My pastor did this. My pastor did that. So I'm not a Christian anymore or I don't go to church anymore. And I have to tell you, that I'm really tired of hearing it. I've been working in the church for almost 30 years, and I'm going to tell you that, that uh, I, I've been hurt by the church more deeply and more frequently than the vast majority of people in the world. I've been betrayed by friends. I've been accused of not loving Christ. I've been accused of not caring about people. I've been accused of all sorts of things, even publicly fired from a church. I have stalkers who chase me down online wherever I go and say hurtful things about me. And to be perfectly honest with you as well, I've hurt people over the years because of my own insensitivity or immaturity or whatever. The reason the church hurts people is because it's made up of people like you and me. The church is made up of imperfect people. Get over it. There are some bad churches, there are some less bad churches, and there are some good churches, but there are no perfect churches. If you're in a bad one, find a good one. If you're looking for perfection in a place you will never get your feelings hurt, you'll never be disappointed, you'll never feel disillusioned, never get your toes stepped on, you won't find that in a local church. But exactly where will you find that? Because, uh, listen folks, the prevailing sentiment of the culture at large regarding the origin of the universe is naturalistic evolution, which tagline is survival of the fittest. In other words, natural selection, which means your failure, your incapacity, your mistakes mean that you lose and I win, and I hope you lose so that I win. Not much grace there, my friend. If you're looking for grace and acceptance and mercy, you're not going to find it out there. You won't find it perfectly in here. You're not going to find it out there. This was the point an author by the name of Philip Yancey once made. Yancey's a terrific author, written a number of books, uh, fantastic books about his own struggles with, with the church. I want you to listen to what he says. He says, I rejected the church because I found so little grace there. I returned because I found grace nowhere else. Leave a bad church. Find a good church. Get over the fact that people aren't perfect there and drop the victim mentality. And here's why. Here's the problem with the whole victim mentality. Yes, it's instinctive. Yes, it's powerfully seductive. 
But here's the problem. Let me put it this way. Diminished responsibility equals diminished humanity. Diminished responsibility, in other words, being a victim, equals diminished humanity. And here's what I mean. For children and for people who aren't mentally competent, we make excuses for them, don't we? And rightly so. She's just a child. You'll have to forgive. You'll have to forgive her manners. Uh, You'll have to forgive his meltdown. He's autistic. They're not responsible because they either haven't reached their full capacity as human beings or they can't. And you see, a victim mentality diminishes your humanity because it says that you aren't responsible for your actions. You don't have the capacity to take responsibility. You have no control over your will, over your faculties. You're at the mercy of whatever or whoever your oppressor is. Christianity makes you more human, you see, by its insistence that you take responsibility for your own actions. This is why there are commands in Scripture. This is also what confession and repentance are all about. Confession and repentance make you more fully human because they insist that you take responsibility for your actions rather than blame someone else. The problem with the victim mentality is that diminished responsibility equals diminished humanity. The victim mentality, in other words, makes you less human. And as you watch how Samson treats the people with whom he interacts in the story, would you say that he acts fully human? Or would you say that he acts with a diminished humanity? I was watching a I don't know, it was some show, I don't know what show it was, but I was watching some show the other day, and I heard this very common phrase, and they were using it to rationalize an illegitimate relationship, and here's the phrase, see if you've heard this before, and maybe you've said it, and maybe you believe it. The heart wants what the heart wants. You ever heard that one? Maybe you've said it. Maybe you believe it. Maybe it got you into a relationship. Maybe it got you into a marriage. Maybe it got you into some other kind of relationship that you didn't want to be in or you shouldn't have been in. I think Samson would have said something like that. That's why he wanted to marry a Philistine woman. The heart wants what the heart wants. In other words, I can't control it. I'm at the mercy of my emotions and I'm a victim of my heart's desires. It's a victim mentality, you see. Let me suggest that by way of application... You listen carefully to yourself today, this week. Listen to some of the things that you say. How often do you play the victim? And it takes a lot of different forms. Let me give you some signs of a victim mentality in you. Here are some signs of it. Here's here's one. It's the unwillingness to say, I was wrong. That's a victim mentality. It's It's your fault. It's her fault. It's everybody else's fault. It is not my fault. Blaming others course. Self-pity. Woe is me. Life is unfair. It's all out to get me. Everybody's out to get me. Isolation. Why do anything? Why get out of the house? They're all against me anyway. Rationalization. Well, I just did it because they did it. I mean, I merely did to them what they did to me. Samson. Lack of motivation. Nothing I do makes any difference. Ungratefulness. Ungratefulness to God. Do you realize that God owes you nothing? Even your breath. I don't know if you know this, but even your breath is God's grace. 
I mean, if he gave you nothing else, that's grace. How often do you give thanks? I dare you to monitor yourself this week. How much do you play the victim? Don't be surprised when you find it. It's instinctive. It's part of your sin nature. Samson's all about playing the victim. And let's go back to the passage. The Philistines are threatening, you remember, to attack Israel, and the men of Judah want no part of that, so 3,000 of these really tough guys from Judah go down to arrest one Samson and turn him over. Uh, You know, 3,000, they must have been a really beaten down bunch of guys to think that 3,000 of them, anyway, are required to take this guy down. Anyway, they tie him up and they hand him over to the Philistines. Verse 14, as he approached Lehi, the Philistines come toward him shouting. You know, they're angry. The army comes at him shouting. The spirit of the Lord comes powerfully upon him. The ropes on his arms become like charred flax and the bindings dropped from his hands. And the text goes on to say that Samson killed 1,000 men. Skip down to verse 18. Because he was very thirsty, he cried out to the Lord, You have given your servant this great victory. Must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? That's kind of victory. Then God opened up the hollow place in Lehi, and water came out of it. When Samson drank, his strength returned, and he revived. And so the spring was called in Hakor, and it is still there in Lehi. Here's what's so fascinating to me about this. People who adopt a victim mentality often do so because... They feel powerless, or maybe they have been taught to feel powerless. Maybe things in their lives happened that made them feel powerless. But every time Samson needs the Lord to come through for him, every single time he needs him to come through for him, the text tells us that the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. Even here at this moment that he's thirsty, he cries out to the Lord, and the Lord promises water for him. It's a petulant prayer. Must I now die of thirst? And fall into the hands of the unsurvised. Petulant, even victimy, I would say. But no lectures from God. No unwillingness on God's part to answer him. Because he was throwing down, you know, some attitude. No, God doesn't do anything. Just provides for him here. And you see, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, the real problem behind the victim mentality is that it is a denial of two things. First, it's a denial of the power of the Spirit of God within you. You know, Samson didn't have the Spirit of God within him. The Spirit of God, this is why the text would say that the Spirit of God would come upon Samson. He didn't have what, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, Samson didn't have what we have. He didn't have the the Spirit of God within him. See, the Holy Spirit doesn't have to come upon you. He lives in you, able to help you able to help you admit that you're wrong and not be completely devastated by that without leaving you feeling hopeless, despair, able to empower you to make it through very difficult times, able to change you. No matter how long you've been the way that you are, he's able to change you. It's a denial of that when we do this victim mentality, but second, it's also a denial. It's a denial of the willingness of God to act, to intervene, to use his power on our behalf. Listen to the, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? A victim mentality denies that God is willing to marshal all of heaven and earth for you on your behalf to meet your need 
And instead of being seduced by the siren call of a victim mentality, instead of drinking from the stagnant water of self-pity, look at the cross of Christ. You know, earlier uh, when I showed you how Adam adopted the victim mentality when confronted with his sin, you know what the irony of that situation was? Adam said, you know, I'm the victim. It's Eve's fault. It's your fault, God. He says, I'm the victim. The irony of that situation was that the only victim in the story was God. It wasn't Adam. It wasn't Eve. They both freely chose to rebel against God. God was the first victim in human history. We betrayed him. We rebelled against him. We ruined his world and broke his heart in the process. But God in his great mercy didn't take on a victim mentality. He didn't just give up. That's part of what the story of Samson and His birth reminds us of God intervening into human history to ensure His promise to send a Messiah through the Jewish people would be fulfilled despite our rebellion against Him. But Samson's story points us to Christ in more ways than just His birth. At the end of chapter 15, we saw 3,000 of the men of Judah. What, What is it that they do? They hand their deliverer over. to the enemy. The very people that Samson came to deliver. They didn't want his deliverance. They didn't want him disturbing the peace of their slavery. And so they rejected him. And you see, Samson's story is to point us to Christ here too because Christ also came as a deliverer. But we didn't want him disturbing the peace of our slavery and so we rejected him. And we handed him over to be crucified on the cross. And listen to me, on the cross, God in the person of Jesus was victimized once again to redeem the very people who rejected him. Look at the cross, my friends. When you're tempted to play this victim thing, look at the cross. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Would you bow your heads with me for prayer? We see in Samson, uh, Lord Jesus, this uh, sort of victim mentality What's fascinating is that you used him in spite of it, and it's encouraging to us, it's encouraging to me, I get victimy, and somehow you choose to use me in spite of my victiminess, in spite of my victim mentality. Lord, you worked through, in Samson, you worked through this, this dude who was cruel and mean, and somehow you still, you still brought about your plan through, through him, I, I, you know. It's a demonstration of your sovereignty. Lord, we confess this morning how instinctive this victim mentality is to us and how many times that we have uh, we've given in to its seduct- seductiveness. Lord, we pray today, we, we, we want to become people who are not diminished humans. We want to be people who are increasingly fully human. And so we thank you for Scripture, for the commands of Scripture. We thank you for 
We thank you for things like confession and, and, and repentance that, that require us to be human, that, that push us to own and to take responsibility for things, to not just play victims all the time. Lord, we thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, that you became a victim on a cross, not with a victim mentality, but willingly became a victim of our sins so that you could redeem us. Thank you so much, Lord Jesus Christ. And for those who are true victims here, maybe they're here today and they're, they're dealing with deep wounds because of hurt, betrayal. Lord, I pray that you would bind up those wounds, that you would heal those wounds, and that you would free them, and that you would show them through like even the story of Samson, that you're able to work through anybody and that you're willing, that you long to answer prayers. And if, and if you didn't spare your son, what else would you not spare? What, what, what would you not give us? Thank you, Lord Jesus. And it's in your name that we worship and that we pray today. Be glorified today in us. And let us become a, not a bad church and, and not a less bad church, but a, but a good church, though we're not a perfect church. Let us be a good church. And it's in your name we pray.